In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an amazing guest here with me, Matt. How are you, my friend? I'm awesome. How are you doing, Pamela? I'm doing awesome. You know, it's it's crazy times in the world right now, but, you know, thankfully, all is well in my world. And how are you doing, Matt? Everything's good. Everything's good in my world. Just trying to uh, avoid a little virus here and there. But besides that, uh, life is good. I love it. So I'm going to start you off with one of my favorite questions, which is what inspired you on your journey to where you are today, Matt? And you've done quite a bit. I mean, in the real estate realm, you're like incredible. Tell me. What happened to me is very interesting. You know, if you think back to where you were in 2001, I was working in New York City. I had my own digital marketing agency and the dot-com bubble had burst. All of my clients were not spending money on digital marketing stuff and my business was imploding. So that was not going very well. At that time, it just so happened that the landlord where I was living calls me up and tells me I've got 90 days to get out. (laughs) So I'm in New York City with an imploding business and trying to figure out what am I going to do for my living situation. So I wanted to stay in New York, but trying to find a place in New York with essentially no job and, you know, the financials on the business did not look good. This was like mission impossible. Like, I didn't know how this was ever going to, what was I going to do? Well, it turns out I got a job a client of mine offered me a job. Uh, Showtime, the cable television channel, wanted me to come in-house. So I went in-house and I was going to rent. I wanted to rent an apartment on the Upper West Side because I loved the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was my favorite place. And when I had originally moved to the city, I'd lived there. It was, you know, that's where I wanted to be. What ended up happening was my sister lived up in Washington Heights. And for those of, of your listeners who don't really know Manhattan that well, it's way, 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 way north. She saw a note on a bulletin board for an apartment co-op for sale. And I actually ended up buying that co-op. So it was less expensive than the rental in the Upper West Side. It was definitely not my choice of place to live, but it, it seemed like the right thing to do. Two and a half years later, I sold that apartment and I saw my initial investment, my down payment, quadruple. And it was like, light bulb moment for me. Like, wow, what just happened? What's with this real estate thing? And how do I do that again? Right? So I then took the profits from that and bought a place on the Upper West Side, which is where I wanted to live, you know, the whole time. And then I started looking for other opportunities to invest in real estate. And that's kind of what started the whole thing. And then it went on from there. That is awesome. It's crazy. Those light bulb moments, right? Like where you just get them and you're like, I know what I'm supposed to do. That was like me and flips. Like I had two restaurants at the time and then I started flipping houses and I'm like $86,000 profit on the first deal. Mm, Yeah. 
let's keep doing this. Let's keep replicating this. And then I like sold and leased my restaurants and just went all in and the development stuff. I was like, no. And it's amazing when those moments come, right? Because I'll tell you firsthand that when I was in the restaurant space and I saw these real estate developers come my way, I literally thought that they were drug dealers. Because like, it was like Friday and they were like, yeah, we just came from golfing. We're going to take the weekend off and maybe even Monday. And, you know, they're in their Mercedes Benz and like all these. And I'm just like, I didn't know like life could operate that way to me as an immigrant coming in, you know, in this country and being raised, you know, by immigrant parents. All you know is like you physically having to work hard to prove that you're actually working hard, right? To prove your success levels, right? And so I never heard before that, like the concept of making your money work for you and like real estate investing and all these things. And then I started looking into it and I was like, the most, the richest people in the world have their hands in real estate somehow. So it's incredible that you, you had that light bulb moment. And then after that, what was your first investment after purchasing well, making those two purchases? And then after that, because you've gotten into basically like multifamily investing, which is like the number one thing that everyone wants to learn how to invest in, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, there was some, there was a bunch of steps between the multifamily and I'll briefly go through them with you. So the first like real real estate investment that I did, because those two were primary residences. So I never really considered them invest, but they kind of were, but not, you know, I don't really consider them that much of an investment. But my first purchase that was an investment property was a property in Northwest Connecticut when I bought a piece of land and eventually built a house there. And the initial thought there was that it was going to be a vacation home, actually. And it ended up being a full-time rental for a number of circumstances that were happening in my personal life. I had met the woman who I ended up marrying. Her parents had a place on the other side of the state of Connecticut. We could go there and hang out a lot of the time. So there was just opportunity to rent it. And there was demand, more demand than I had anticipated. So that was a rental property. And then we bought a place in Brooklyn. Um, My wife was pregnant. So our family was growing and we had a little one bedroom apartment in Manhattan, which was great. And I, I had to leave my beloved Upper West Side and move to Brooklyn. And we bought a townhouse. But this time I got a two family house. So I did what is now traditionally known in a lot of real estate circles as a house hack. I didn't know what that term was uh, back then. I just, the numbers seemed to make sense because the one unit that was rented, the rent on that was more than just 50% of the mortgage. So we got the other half of the house and paid the mortgage bill and we're paying less than what the renters were paying. So, and they were actually also getting a great deal for the market. We got a, we got a great deal on this place when we bought it. So we did that. And then my wife got approached completely out of the blue about a year later with an amazing job opportunity, but it wasn't in New York city. It was in Miami, Florida. So we, decided to go ahead and move to to Miami. We had a one-year-old kid at the time and we moved to Miami and that's when I left my corporate job. So I had been working, remember I mentioned earlier at Showtime, and then I went into really the advertising world here in New York and worked at a number of different agencies for about an 18-year career, sort of climbing the corporate ladder, Uh, was eventually a vice president. We moved to Miami 
and I left the corporate world behind. I was sort of burned out from it. When I moved down to Miami, I thought maybe I would do it. I interviewed at a couple of places, but they were all really small agencies. In New York, I was managing teams of like a hundred people. And in Miami, there was like maybe 10 people in the whole agency. So it was just on a very different scale. It wasn't the right thing. And I was burned out after working crazy hours in New York for such a long time. And I had been doing real estate as a hobby at this point for 10 years. And I said, you know what? I really want to try to make a go of this. So the first six months of me trying to make a go of doing real estate full-time, I was trying to flip properties my idea was flipping properties, doing some buy and holds, maybe holding on to some of those flips, trying to do some like tax liens and deeds and just kind of like feeling it all out. And what I found for me and my lifestyle and where I lived in Miami also, it just, it didn't work. To really have a flipping business to replace the income that I had been making after, you know, a career in advertising, I would need to have like a construction company and have millions of contacts and really be doing so much volume that it just, it didn't make sense for me. And I didn't feel comfortable in Miami. The pricing was for the types of things that I wanted to do was just way too high. And so I was flipping some properties out of state and there was a bunch of things going on, but I had always wanted to go bigger. When we first bought the place in Brooklyn, I saw what our portion of the mortgage was. I said, you know, wow, wow, this is great. If we ever moved, which when we did, we rented out our unit. We were making really nice cash flow. I had wanted to buy another townhouse in Brooklyn, but I didn't have the amount of capital, a property, a townhouse in Brooklyn, you know, we're talking seven figures here. And so I didn't have that kind of capital to go ahead and buy something. And, but I didn't know about a thing that I learned about when I was in Miami. In Miami, while I was doing all these things, I had a lot of time. I was listening to podcasts and reading books and just really immersing myself in real estate. And I heard someone on a podcast mention this thing called syndication that I had never heard of before. And syndication, for any of your listeners who aren't sure what that is, it's when a bunch of investors come together and pool their money together, actually their resources, because you also couldn't leverage each other's balance sheets and experience and capital to get otherwise unobtainable assets. You know, the first place that I ended up purchasing was a 132 unit multifamily property, almost $10 million that I never would have been able to do that on my own. Okay. But because I was able to leverage the, the collective, if you will, I was able to go ahead and do that. So I heard about syndication and I started learning more, researching it, finding out about it. I went to a seminar that was run by these guys that I love that do seminars. And they, it was more of like a 30,000 foot level of syndication, talking about the legalities of it, talking about how you could do it for apartments or you can do it for assisted living facilities. There was someone who was a geothermal engineer and she wanted to create a geothermal power source and mm -hmm. she was trying to syndicate that. I mean, like you can syndicate basically anything. And what blew my mind when I went there was I already knew what syndications were because I had already been involved in syndications without realizing them. So my background, when I moved to New York, I moved to New York from Florida originally to pursue a career in theater. And I, I was a professional actor for many years. My wife, who I met much later, also happens to be in the theater. She works on the business side. And we've been fortunate enough to invest in some Broadway shows. Some of them have not done well. Some of them have been massive hits, which is <laughs> exciting. And 
those are done, or the vast majority of them are done as a 506C Reg D filing, which I knew as I was filling out the paperwork at say 506C, but I didn't know what that was. I didn't know those were called syndications until I went to the seminar and they start talking about 506B and 506C and PPMs and subscription agreements. I'm like, oh, this is just like the Broadway shows. Like I could, you know, light bulb. That's when I got involved and I started investing first passively. I wanted to be active, but it takes a while. It took me two years to get that first deal that I was talking about by building relationships and building trust with brokers. Some guy from, you know, we, we ended up moving to Boston, which is where I met you. We had to end up moving to Boston and the deal that I, my first deal ended up, it was right after we moved to Boston and it was in Kansas City. And so, you know, someone from Kansas City and this guy from Miami who then just moved to Boston is coming and he's going to buy a $10 million property as the broker you're concerned, right? Who is this person? Can they actually, you know, close? Do they have a track record, right? Because otherwise, as you know, Pamela, I mean, you're a commercial real estate agent, right? These right. transactions are are large ticket items, but there's also with the due diligence and everything, you're talking about 60, 90 days. If the deal falls apart, they can't come to the finish line because they can't raise the capital for it. That's a big, big problem. So for me to develop our relationships with brokers and property managers and gain their trust took a bit of time and to, to learn what I was doing. So I was investing passively in multifamily syndications. And so my portfolio now, you know, I have over 8,000 units that I'm invested in. Two thirds of that portfolio are deals that I'm a limited partner in. And then one third are deals that I happen to be a limited partner in as well because I always put my money in my own deals, but that I'm a general partner in. And it's not that I own 8,000 units completely. It's fractional ownership, right? I invest in, we'll, we'll buy a 200 unit property and maybe I'll have 5% or 10% of the ownership of it or something like that, just depending on the size and, and what my role is. But so two thirds of my portfolio are passive deals that I invest in with other people that I've gotten to to trust and know and feel good about, which is really important because you're giving them money and you have very little control over these deals as an investor. But if you feel comfortable with them, I think that it can be a very wise investment. So I do that. And then I also run some of my own investments and I have investors who invest in those with me. That is awesome. I love the trajectory and how it's like spanned out. But one thing I didn't know was that you were an actor before. Oh my God. <laughs> So wait, yeah. walk me, let's reel it back a little bit. So what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. I was, I was a professional actor for five years. I was in 15 oh. professional productions across the United States. I've actually performed in every major city in the continental US. And it was awesome. I really enjoyed it, but I ended up really also, you know, I'm also a, a little bit of a geeky nerdy guy. I also really like computers. And so I started tinkering around with computers. And so I know the restaurant business, just like you were talking about earlier, because I used to work in the restaurant business because I was a waiter in between acting gigs. And I didn't really love it. And the hours weren't really great. So I ended up doing website development and digital marketing type projects in between acting gigs and that's when I had the opportunity. There was so much work at that time during this was the heyday of the dot coms that I was able to create my own boutique agency doing that, which is sort of the story that we started off with. That's so cool. And so who was like your biggest inspiration growing up? That's a really good question. I don't know. There was, I admired so many people 
Um, when it comes to acting, like, I mean, Dustin Hoff, a lot of like character actors, right? I was never, can't tell uh, if you're just listening to the audio or you're just seeing me on video, but I'm a short dude. I'm like five, five. So I was never going to be like the leading man, like kind of guy. I was always going to be the character actor. And those are the people like Dustin Hoffman, like Billy Crystal, like the, the people who are, you know, sort of masters at the craft. I used to love Eric Bogosian. And this was before he became really well known. Somehow we had some bootleg VCR. Remember those VHS tapes mm-hmm. of him doing shows in New York? He used to do these shows where he would do monologue after monologue and he would change character like vocally and physically, and he wrote all of these and they were brilliant. I used to love to watch him, but these were people who were, I mean, I was just really into the craft of acting, which is why I wanted to be a stage actor. Um, you know, the, there's an old saying that at least they used to say back then, I haven't heard it in years, but they used to say, film makes you famous, TV makes you rich, and the stage makes you an actor. And I don't mean that to disparage people like, Brad Pitt, who's an amazing actor of stage and screen. And there's just so many others I could just name, you know, Matt Damon. I mean, just so many people that I love that are great at their craft, but I just really liked the stage and wanted to do that. So that's what I did. I love it. I love it. So the productions you've performed in every single major city in the U.S. Yeah. What was the performance? (laughs) What were the shows I did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I did a lot of different shows. I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is I wanted to be a rock star, okay? (laughs) I I wanted to be a rock star. I love music, and I wanted to be a rock star. And I used to listen to, you know, rock and roll, and then towards the end of my high school career, uh, bands like, I mean, I was listening to like U2 and then NXS and then like Nirvana came out when I was graduating high school and I goes into the grunge scene, but I was never cool enough to be a rock star. So I did musical theater. <laughs> what? Oh, you're totally a rock star. I, see. I, I wanted to be Britney Spears. <laughs> oh, so I look, I loved musical theater too. And, and I'm not disparaging musical theater. I loved it, but I was more into just like music as a whole music. and acting. And so obviously musical theaters where those two meet yes. and I moved to New York to pursue, to, to go to a, a musical theater conservatory called AMDA, the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And I walked in there and I didn't know who Stephen Sondheim was. And everybody looked at me like I had three heads. Like, how does this kid not know who Stephen Sondheim is? I knew who Andrew Lloyd Webber was, but I didn't really know a lot of the greats. And I learned all of that in that school. Like I learned who all these people were and it was awesome. I really enjoyed it and had a blast doing it, but I also enjoy what I do now. And so the cool thing about what I do now is that I'm able to still be involved in theater because Mm -hmm. as an investor, you know, we were able to invest in a bunch of shows. We invested in Hamilton, which was a massive hit. And then uh, with my wife, we've co-produced a couple of shows on Broadway. So we co-produced Moulin Rouge and American Utopia. And so when we moved back to New York in August of 2021, we got to go to the Tony Awards and we won two Tony Awards. What? Man, so we got a side of you. Yeah. So, well, you didn't know it because I was in Boston and it was, this just happened a few months ago when we moved back. I got him right over there, but we got a Tony for American Utopia. It got a special Tony award because it's, it's David Byrne, right? Talk about like what I love. David Byrne, the lead singer for the Talking Heads who I idolized in high school, right? 
it's doing a show on Broadway. And so, but it wasn't a traditional show. It's, it's almost more of a con. I mean, there's, there's a whole concept around it and everything, but it's, it's not a traditional musical. So it got a special Tony award because it wasn't eligible for regular uh, for like best musical. And then Moulin Rouge swept the Tonys with 10 Tony awards, including best musical. So it was awesome. So I get to still be involved in the theater and that's what my wife does nine to five. She's on the business end of, of, of theater and but sometimes we join forces and co-produce stuff here and there and it's really fun and that's why you know i have a book that's coming out the title of it is called backstage guide to real estate because it's tying in sort of my my theater my passion for the arts my passion for the theater and my background in the theater but also it's like the backstage because i'm kind of like pulling the curtain back and showing people what's going on so a lot of the the, the book tells the narrative of my story, of my journey, and through that teaches people 60 different real estate terms are defined throughout the book through telling fun and interesting stories. It was important to me to make this a fun, interesting, good read. And there's also 18 keystone concepts that I teach along the way of that shifted my mindset and things that I learned along the way. And then at the end of the book, there's a section called the backstage toolbox, which really gets into someone who, who may want to be a, become a passive investor, the questions that you'd want to answer, like how to look at a deal, which is, you know, there's three things, the sponsor, the market, and the deal, and questions to ask for all three of those and get into some nitty gritty on like cap rates and rent growth and all that kind of crazy stuff. I love that, Matt. I mean, I'm going to check it out myself because as you know, I've been mostly, I'm definitely going to check it out myself because as you know, I've mainly been like flips that's a, and, and invested in all my own deals and all of that. Like I haven't gone large scale on mm. multifamily deals and it's something that I truly want to do. And I'd really love to ask your opinion on what you think is about to happen with the market, because I'm seeing private equity invest heavy into multifamily and as well as buying out small businesses and pulling out of stocks. So what is your opinion about what's about to happen in, in 2022? Well, let me pull out my crystal ball here. It's looking kind of cloudy. I don't know. I can't. I have a hard time making predictions, but what I I will make a prediction in a second, but not a prediction, but some directional stuff. But the kind of investing that I like to do, I invest in cash flowing properties. And this is one of the things that I talk about in the book, because the real estate market, just like the economy, moves in cycles. There's ups and there's downs. Okay. As long as you're cash flowing, you're not going to have to sell when you're in a down. And that's the key. My dad taught me that when I was, when I bought my first apartment, he taught me the most important thing. He says, you never lose money in real estate if you never have to sell. So if you're never in a position where you have to sell, you just don't sell at a loss. You hold on to it and then you wait. So everything that I buy has cash flow, so that even if the economy goes down, we're okay. But based on what's going on, we've had 10 years of the Fed pumping money into the economy, which should have devalued the dollar and pushed inflation up, but it really didn't, at least not yet, right? And then you had COVID where even more money was pumped into the system. So you've got the Fed, you just got all this money that's been generated and it's not really backed by anything. And so one would tend to believe that something like that at some point will cause inflation. If you are invested in things like real estate, as the inflation goes up, those asset prices will go up. It will go up with inflation. So it should be protected. Also, interest rates are still at really, really low, you know, in the mid threes right now, which is insane. Even in 2018, I was closing on deals at 
above 5%. So if you can lock in long-term debt at really low rates on a tangible asset, you know, I mean, listen, stocks, bonds, they're zeros and ones, you know, and I don't know what's going to happen with the dollar. Some people predict that the dollar is going to collapse, you know, fiat currencies, as I understand it, there's never been a fiat currency that's ever lasted. Like they all eventually collapse. And so, and that's what we have in America. Like we, the dollar used to be based on gold in a vault. And then Nixon took us off the gold system and the money's just whatever the government says the money is. And if at some point, people lose their faith in the U.S. government, then the dollar's not worth as much anymore. So that Mm. property is still going to be worth something. People still need a place to live. I mean, I I wrote this in a blog recently until we're all uploaded to the matrix. Because at some point when we're all uploaded to the matrix, we won't need a place to live anymore. But (laughs) until then, (laughs) we're going to need a roof over our heads, right? And so it has a value, uh, whether that's a dollar or you're paying in yen or you're bartering chickens like back in the medieval times. I don't know, but it, there's there's an intrinsic value to real assets. That's why a lot of people like to ha- hold on to you know physical gold and silver or things that are just tangible assets. And that's why I like real estate. I, I don't know where things are going, but you're talking about institutional sort of moving into that, I think that they might be thinking the same thing. Like, hey, it looks like there's probably some inflation coming. The great thing about multifamily is it's super resilient because people need a place to live. I mentioned that in in an article I wrote for Forbes, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, people still needed, that was like the most important thing. Some people could care less about their workspace or anything else, but because their workspace became their home, their, you know, your office became the home. And so that was extremely important. So that's just me pontificating, but I have, I have no idea. All I know is I buy cash flowing businesses, (laughs) which happen to be apartments, building businesses that generate income. And I think I buy them uh, with very, very conservative underwriting. My underwriting, I, I'm predicting a softening of the real estate market. So I, in my underwriting, so that I'm covered if things go down, because eventually they will, right? And then they'll right. go back up and then they'll go back down. So that's it. I love it, Matt. No, I love it. Thank you so much for your insight. I'm always asking everyone, I'm like, what do you think is about to happen? Because I have people that are like sounding off alarms that are saying, uh, yeah, February, March 22, by the end of Q1, it's going to be an absolute storm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. In the stocks, not in real estate. But real estate will be affected because of the stocks. And so that's what I'm hearing left and right. And then there's people that are like, no. And then so it's like, it's such mixed reviews. And it's really, really interesting. I mean, I've been hearing that we're at the top of the market, both with real estate and and with stocks since about 2015. So it's been six years that I hear that. I I still look at it and I'm like, wow, it looks really frothy. I don't know how they've got (laughs) these valuations, but it keeps going. Eventually it'll go down. I just have no idea when. Yeah, so we'll see. End of Q1, we're going to have another conversation and we're going to talk about it together. We're like, Matt, you were right or I was right or, or whatever. And and Matt, I'm sure you get this question a lot of like, Matt, how do I get into real estate investing like you? I'm sure that you get this question a lot, Matt, where people come to you and like, how can I get into real estate multifamily investing? I'm pretty Sorry. sure. And I mean, I know your book is coming out as well. So you'll give them that. That's for sure. What would be your biggest piece of advice for someone who comes to you and says, hey, I wanted to get into multifamily investing? I think the most important thing is 
networking. You need to network to meet people who are in the space. A lot of uh, the syndications that are done are done in a way that they can't be advertised. And the book gets into all the details around that. And some of them can be advertised, but a lot of them aren't. And so you have to meet the people, but also even if something's being advertised, like, are you going to see a billboard or, you know, uh, an ad on a website to, you know, invest and then just throw, I mean, a lot of these have a minimum of $50,000, right. Or higher. So are you just going to see a you know banner on a website and put in 50 K probably, you know, maybe not, I don't know. So you really want to get to meet people who are doing this and that can be done you can do it online. I think it's best to be done in person if possible. It's really hard when there's a global pandemic to meet people in person, but hopefully that's going away soon. But, you know, I used to run a local meetup in Boston. Uh, it still is running. So people in Boston could look for that. I'm going to start one up in New York as soon as uh, COVID dies down a bit. But for the one in Boston, we went online during COVID. But we started doing it online and, and there are ones online that do it. So getting out there, meeting people is a great way to do it. And then you can talk with other investors, get educated. Some of them will tell you to buy my book. Some of them will tell you to buy a different book. Some will tell you to listen to Pam's uh, underdog podcast. Some people will tell you to listen to a different podcast. You know what I mean? Like you'll get some information from different people from different sources and start learning, get yourself educated on the space. And then, then you need to make the effort and actually bite the bullet and do the investment. You want to get educated first, but you don't want to have uh, analysis paralysis where you just sit around and get educated for 10 or 15 years and never invest. The one thing that I've heard many people say, and I would say it too, if people were to ask me, what's the one thing that you might do differently? I would say I would have invested sooner and I would have invested more. And I, I just, I always hear that from real estate people. So get educated, make sure you know what you're doing and then get yourself in the game. Because, you know, my first investment, by the way, on a syndication, I talk about in the book, it's a whole chapter. It did not go well. I didn't lose money. We barely, barely eked out a profit. But I'll tell you, I learned so much from that. You know, the next deals that I started investing in got really good. And that, that's what I'm basically teaching the book is like all the things I learned by losing money. <laughs> I didn't lose. Actually, I haven't, I haven't lost money in the, the multifamily just because we've had such a great ride the past 10 years. But I've had deals that have not gone very well. And through all of that, I tell some stories and teach some lessons. I love that, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so this is one of my favorite questions. And it is, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? Even though I know you kind of mentioned it in the book, your lessons and stuff, but it could be whatever you want it to be. Yeah, I think it really would have been what I just said, which was invest earlier at a younger, I had a conversation with a 23-year-old who reached out to me, who's interested in possibly investing in some syndications. And I just was like, wow, I was blown away by this guy. Very nice, smart guy, makes a good living, enjoys what he's doing. He's, he hasn't been doing it all that long. Uh, so he must be pretty bright. And But he's like, yeah, I want to invest in real estate. And I was just like, wow, if I would have started investing in multifamily syndications, when I was 23 years old, I don't even know where I would be right now. I wouldn't be here. I would be, I don't know where, but probably somewhere different because, I mean, I, it just blows my mind. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of wish, you know, if I had it to do over again, what I tell myself, I'd say, hey, start investing in real estate, you know, give it a try, see what, see what, see what happens. <laughs> I love it. And Matt, what are you up to in the next like six to 12 months? What's going on in your world, aside from the book, which is launching super soon? Well, yeah, a lot of the next six to 12 months, I think is going to be promoting the book, trying to get the word out there about that. But then, you know, I'm always looking at deals to syndicate, right? That I, that I will run and also deals to invest in from a passive perspective. So a lot of my days are, are looking at deals or going to different types of uh, networking events, usually real estate related so that I can meet more people, take a look at deals and see if there's things, opportunities that are good or, you know, going and looking at properties myself. So that's my thing. And, and you know, we're actually, this is kind of cool. My wife and I are working on, we're helping a couple of writers do a little workshop of a show that could end up being something or could end up not. It's a very, very, very early stage, but that's kind of cool doing a little theater thing there. So um, yeah. Love it, Matt. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now you've got to let everyone know where to find you and your awesomeness, your platforms, your websites, all that good stuff. Everything is available on my website. So the book, my blog, which has some great educational information on there, and my newsletter that I send out every month that has educational tips and, and con- it's, it's actually a really fun. I put a lot of personality into it. So all of that is available at pacheni.com. And I'll spell that for you. It's P like in Peter, I-C-H-E-N-Y, pacheni.com. I love it, man. I want to thank you so much for being here today, Matt. You're such a rock star. I'm so excited for your book to <laughs> launch and just, Thank you so much for for everything today. It was awesome. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode.